Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Roxanne Kamsey in for Ira Flato. Later this hour, we'll talk to two autistic researchers adding their own lived experience and expertise to the study of autism. And we'll dig into our history with parasites. This week, air pollution regulators in California made a bold move to phase out sales of new gasoline-powered vehicles with a complete ban on gas car sales by 2035. Joining me now to talk about this and other science stories of the week is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American based in New York City. Sophie, welcome back to Science Friday. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So let's talk first about this car decision. What exactly are these regulators in California banning? So California regulators have said that by 2035, no gas-powered cars can be sold. So electric or hydrogen-powered vehicles will be all of the new vehicles sold. Used vehicles can still be there. And the other interesting thing is that they're phasing them out. So by 2026, already 35% of new passenger vehicles have to produce zero emissions. Wow. So it's not so much about going cold turkey. Exactly. They're easing into it, but it is still a significant change. And if other states follow them, this could affect a third of all automobile sales in the U.S. And so to make this change, is there going to be a, a need for new infrastructure, new charging stations? What, what's needed to, to make this happen? Absolutely. So one of the things that electric vehicles require are charging stations so they can go distances. And California is also making moves to put money towards establishing those. Another issue is that if you have a lot of electric cars charging up the grid, you'll need to make sure that there's enough electricity for them. So that will also have to be addressed by 2035. Hmm. California is super trendy. It's on trend. What is the likelihood that other states will make the similar kind of move? There's about 16 states that tend to follow California's lead when it comes to regulating auto emissions. And so those are pretty likely to follow suit. This could be a absolutely enormous impact on emissions. Transportation is the main source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. So not just cars, but the aviation industry as well. Still, cars are a big chunk of that. And if all these states do follow California's lead here, this could be just as significant as the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in terms of uh, the future of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change in the U.S. Whoa. And, you know, since we're talking about climate here, you have a related story this week about Americans' opinions about climate change mitigation. There's an unexpected twist here in what researchers found. Yes, this is fascinating. So measures like California's rule and like the IRA are actually pretty popular. A big majority of Americans think that climate change is a bad thing and support measures to mitigate climate change and to try to prevent some of the worst harms from it. And yet, even though we think these things ourselves, we underestimate hugely what our neighbors think of this. Something like 80 to 90 percent of people surveyed in this new survey underestimated how much public support there is for climate change mitigation measures. And this is a really big deal because if you think that you're the only one who is worried about climate change, you're less likely to speak up and perhaps less likely to, um, if you are a member of Congress, you might be less likely to put forward measures to try to reduce the impact of climate change, when in reality, these measures are popular and people think that they're necessary. 
I mean, this is a, it's a really fascinating insight into how we think others think about climate change. Do you think that this kind of false social reality shapes action on other issues as well? Yes, I think that our willingness to, for example, act on climate change, but also to act on a bunch of other measures, that's tempered by what we think other people will think. We don't want to necessarily support a policy if we think it's super unpopular with everyone else, even if we ourselves believe in it. So I think having an accurate idea of what our neighbors think uh, could be pretty important. And it probably is up to, um, you know, to the researchers who do these surveys and to the journalists who cover them to make sure people are aware of what their neighbors think and not just what they think their neighbors think. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely making me rethink how I think about what others think. (laughs) (laughs) So moving to a different topic, many people turn to sugar substitutes in a desire to cut calories or because they're concerned about their blood sugar. Yet there's new research saying that those substitutes might actually affect blood sugar. How does that all work? So we tend to think of sugar substitutes as having zero calories and then just sort of moving through the body and not affecting us. But previous studies in rodents have found that these sugar substitutes do seem to affect blood sugar and the gut microbiome. And a new study in humans found that that is the case. So they got a cohort of people who don't typically eat uh, calorie-free sweeteners, and then they gave them four sugar substitutes or a filler, which is the non-active ingredient in you know the little packet of sugar substitute you might grab at um, a coffee shop. And in this study, two of the sugar substitutes, saccharin and sucralose, were linked to spikes in glucose levels and all four of them were linked to changes in the gut microbiome. So what they did is they had people either eat a specific sugar substitute or not for two weeks, and then they had them take actual glucose and measured how their blood responded to it. And people who had been taking saccharin or sucralose, their blood sugar levels spiked more in reaction to glucose than those who who hadn't been. And for all of them, when the researchers measured their gut microbiomes before and after, they did see changes. Hmm. Well, definitely, it's a it's finding that sweet spot, you could say. Um, ah. <laughs> but this but this next one we're going to talk about is a little creepy. People that look like you might actually share chunks of your DNA with you, even if you're not related at all. And that's the thing that surprised me the most. I think this is fascinating. So it started with an artist, actually, a photographer, uh, Francois Brunel, doing a photography project where he took pairs uh, of people who were unrelated but looked alike and photographed them together. And what researchers have now done is they looked at 32 pairs uh, from this photography project and they tested their DNA. And what they found is in half of the pairs, there were genetic similarities in the DNA of these two people who thought they were completely unrelated. And are there any practical applications here with this new finding? Well, it could be interesting to to see how this affects, for instance, um, likelihood of developing a disease. So if you and your doppelganger have similar DNA, maybe you're both uh, susceptible to cancer. So this could be used for that. 
But just as interesting as the fact that some of these doppelgangers had similar DNA was the fact that some of these doppelgangers didn't. So for about half the pairs, there weren't significant similarities in DNA, even though they looked so much alike. And it, it suggests that there's only so many different combinations of features that you can put on a face before you start turning out uh, faces that look different. So I think that's fascinating that someone who you're not that genetically close to could still look just like you. Yeah, yeah. And it makes me want to find my doppelganger and maybe do some genetic analysis to see if we're related. Absolutely. I'm going to be staring at all the, the dark haired women I see. Oh, are you are you look you look like me? <laughs> <laughs> so now that we're approaching the end of summer, you also have a story about theories on how we can better engineer sandcastles. Can you say something about that? So this is a very important engineering project for anyone who's planning to uh, head to the beach before the end of summer. Um, yes, and the the key to engineering the perfect sandcastle has to do with a couple things. One of them is the ratio of water to sand. So in laboratory conditions, you would want to have one parts water to eight parts dry sand. But you don't necessarily, you're not in the lab when you're out on the shore. You know, you're dealing with yelling kids and birds and trying to find the spot in between everyone else's beach umbrellas. So um, geotechnical engineers would recommend maybe you want to go down to where about where the tide line is at low tide and you want to take sand from that area. That's going to be your sort of sweet spot of sand to water. And then the other really important thing is you got to pack that sand as tight as possible. So you can do the the classic traditional method of, of, of smooshing sand down into a pail or into a mold and then flipping it upside down and, and using the, that to make blocks. But what this engineer actually recommends is creating a mound of compacted sand and then carving out your castle from it the way a sculptor <laughs> carves a statue from a block of marble. And if you're really serious about this, you might want to actually go beyond the beach. Apparently, having sand grains that are a little rougher and spikier and, and, and less regular actually lets them stick together better and gives you a better castle. So professional sandcastle builders will actually import sand from rivers so it's closer to, to the mountains. And apparently those grains are a little spikier and they stick together better and they let you make a more cohesive castle. Wow, it sounds like these castle engineers will build something that's going to last longer than the, the hour or two when, when I make them. Oh, yeah. My sandcastles collapse almost immediately. I think that <laughs> I would love to learn from this longevity. Finally, we might like to see familiar faces, but it turns out dogs do too. Can you tell us more about this new study? This is delightful. A researcher noticed that his dog's eyes seemed to be filled with tears when she interacted with her puppies. And then he also noticed that the dog seemed to be tearing up when she saw him. So what he did was he studied a couple different things. First of all was do dogs' eyes fill with tears and what makes that happen? And he found that oxytocin, which is associated with social bonding, levels of oxytocin can cause a dog's eyes to well up. And the other thing is that, yes, when a dog's owner comes in the door, its eyes do fill with tears in a way that it wouldn't respond to, say, going to a doggy daycare. You know, it might be act excited, but its eyes don't water in the same way. So this suggests that dogs are reacting socially to the presence of this familiar human, and their reaction then intensifies our reaction to them when 
humans looked at pictures of dogs where either their eyes were filled with tears or they weren't, we were more likely to want to cuddle and play with the teary-eyed ones. So you could see this creating a feedback loop that helps dogs and owners bond. And there are happy tears, just to, just to be clear. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> yes, they seem to be mediated by this uh, bonding hormone. We'll tell ourselves that. Well, thanks so much, Sophie. Thanks for having me. Sophie Bushwick is technology editor for Scientific American. When we come back, studies on autistic people have oftentimes been hurtful and harmful to the very communities they seek to help. But there is a growing number of autistic researchers who study autism or trying to reshape the future of the field. We'll talk to two of them right after the break. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Roxanne Kamsey. Since the very beginning of research about autistic people, neurotypical scientists have been at the helm. Because of that, plus the invisibility of autistic adults in our society, a big chunk of the research has neglected the needs of autistic people. Sometimes it's gone beyond that and even been hurtful and harmful to the very people it aims to help. Until just recently, there have been very few openly autistic researchers who are studying autism. But there's a growing group of autistic researchers who are bringing both their expertise and their own lived experiences to help shape the future of autism research. Here to tell us more are my guests. Dr. T.C. Weisman, a leadership coach and researcher studying autism in higher education based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and Patrick Dwyer, who is a PhD candidate studying sensory processing and attention in autism at the University of California, Davis. Welcome, both of you, to Science Friday. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us, yes. So, Patrick, what have neurotypical researchers historically focused on when it comes to autism research? Some people have been doing more basic uh, biomedical type research, looking at the genetics of autism, looking at animal models, doing various kinds of neuroscience work. It's been neglecting a lot of the most important barriers that we actually face. A lot of the challenges that are faced by autistic people, including those with high support needs, actually have to do with societal discrimination, with a lack of availability of supports, with a lack of inclusiveness, with stigma, all of these things. Um, they're very important to all autistic people, regardless of ability, and that was being completely missed. Meanwhile, some of the efforts to promote secure um, were actually and still are harmful by, you know, telling people that there's something wrong with them, by trying to force compliance. So yes, I would say that definitely our field has a legacy of harm that is unfortunately, very serious. TC, what, what do you see as the, the biggest problems in autism research right now? Yeah, I totally agree with what Patrick's saying. And to build on that, you know, we, our research typically and historically hasn't necessarily focused on creating better outcomes for autistic individuals in terms of our health, our education, our livelihood, our well-being. So unfortunately, that's translated to an emphasis on deficit perspectives and autism 
and looking at our lack of abilities rather than strengths, talents, et cetera. And it's also privileged non-autistic perspectives, research focused on mainly white male representations of autism. So those generalizations still exist either in plain or subtle ways um, today regarding what autism looks like in a person and how it's accepted societally. Also, uh, you know, people like me were missing in research, people from different cultural backgrounds, people from different ages, um, and that kind of thing as well. So a few years ago, the two of you co-founded the Autistic Researchers Committee, which is under the International Society for Autism Research, known also as INSAR. What inspired you to do that? TC, do you want to start? For me, I just didn't see myself. I didn't hear my voice in autism research. Um, and because I was late diagnosed at 48 years old, it was really frustrating for me that the research sort of uh, seemed kind of siloed in a lot of ways. Um, and so for me, this was an act of resistance and an act of act activism, bringing uh, autistic voices to, to decision-making uh, processes within INSAR. And INSAR was ready for it, and INSAR was uh, in agreement that this was needed. One of the goals that um, we had was really to try and uh, promote um, networking among autistic researchers, help our community sort of come together uh, a little, as well as to make the INSAR conference itself more accessible for autistic researchers, just because, you know, there's just a lot of barriers, a lot of uh, things that, that unfortunately make it quite difficult for autistic people to attend research conferences. And TC, you mentioned that you were diagnosed with autism at, at age 48. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research and how you got into it? Uh, when, when I was diagnosed at 48, by the way, it was one month prior to starting my doctoral degree. So I knew very little about autism. And so I changed my research focus and, uh, you know, focused really on, you know, how the heck did I get here? How, how am I autistic and in the education system? And I'm this old and this is happening and I'm not getting the supports I need. And, you know, I've fallen through the cracks. So my research really focused on that, how higher education um, leaders, faculty, and staff can enhance services and outcomes for autistic individuals and neurodivergent individuals um, at the post-secondary level. Patrick, do you have a, a reason that you got inspired to study autism? Yeah, so because I'm a privileged white male, um, at least in, in part, uh, I got diagnosed earlier than TC. I was 11, so, but it was still late enough that it answered a lot of questions. I knew I was different from other people. I was looking around for an explanation on autism provided that. And it connected me to a community of people. And over the years after being diagnosed, I was able to see just how many challenges uh, our community is facing, just how marginalized we are, just how much people are struggling with mental health, with employment, uh, with just trying to exist in the world. And so, of course, I wanted to do something to see if, you know, we could break some of these barriers. And your research, I think, also focuses on sensory processing. Is that right? How would you explain that to somebody who's not familiar with what that means? Well, that too, you know, comes directly from my own experiences. I was struggling a lot with sensory overloads, uh, especially when I was younger in the school system where there's just so much sensory stimulation. It's it's hard to describe, though, because it's so variable depending on, you know, the specific autistic person and the context that they're in and what sort of sensory stimuli they're exposed to. Sometimes, you know, it's that people have a, a real aversion to particular textures, um, scratchy fabrics, 
Um, tastes and food can be a huge thing. And if we can't get some of the foods that we can actually tolerate, that can be a big problem. Um, but then there's also the auditory aspects where you can just be distressed and completely overwhelmed if there's too much auditory stimulation. But then there's also particular sounds that can be really aggravating and annoying or if, even if they're not overwhelming or quiet sounds, they can be really distracting and make it impossible to focus. And it's all, you know, very contextual. It depends on uh, attention, I think. It depends on one's mood and mental state. And it's something that unfortunately is very difficult for other people to understand because it's perhaps a bit outside their experience. And because it's hard to understand, because it's so very variable from context to context, you know, often people can doubt that it's real. And I got a lot of that as younger people thinking that I was making some of it up or trying to rationalize, you know, well, this environment is noisier than that environment, but Patrick's fine in that noisy environment, but not this somewhat quieter one, what's going on there. And there's still a lot of things that we don't fully understand about sensory processing at all. So. Do you find that there's a disconnect between what neurotypical researchers more often focus on versus what autistic communities want out of research? And I don't want to generalize about neurotypical researchers and neurodivergent researchers' priorities, but I can tell you that coming from a particular community informs me in a different way about the priorities from within that community. So, for example, I'm Black, Indigenous, Pacifica, South Asian, and I'm autistic. And so my lived experiences, um, you know, I don't get to put those down. I don't get to forget about it. The world treats me in a certain way every moment, every time I walk out the door. So when you come from inside that experience, there are subtle pieces of knowledge, there are questions, dreams, concerns that are relevant to us that wouldn't even land on the radar of someone who comes from outside of the experience. For example, for me, the barriers that existed to getting a diagnosis, you know, the cultural nuances that make it difficult to see us as autistic, the biases, um, you know, I was looked at as having behavioral issues rather than being autistic. And we're talking about a community, an autistic community that is as deep as all the cultures in the world, as wide as the spectrum range of expressions of autism, as vast as the kinds of intersections, you know, that include age, co-occurring disabilities. So our research priorities from within the communities are already plentiful. And, you know, here we are in all our intersectional glory to represent ourselves fully in autism research. Absolutely. Yes, yes. If you look at the distribution of where autism research money is going, uh, you know, it's to things like neuroscience, understanding the causes and etiology of autism and doing surveillance to figure out how many autistic people there are. And really, it's only a very small pittance that is going to these very important priorities that TC is saying. And I'm not saying that the things that I was naming before are valueless, but there's clearly a difference in the priorities. And so I see that we tend to gravitate towards much more applied research that focusing you know, on society and societal barriers to a much greater extent than research that's focused on, on like cure type things, obviously. Um, you know, research that's exploring identity and intersectional identity and all of those is barriers and challenges and discrimination. There's, there's um, research looking at the accessibility of different systems. There, you know, I think it is it is quite quite different on average. Um, what the uh, your autistic autism researcher would most likely be studying versus an neurotypical autism researcher. You see, I was actually curious if I could follow up and ask you what you think the reason is that more funding isn't going to research led by autistic people. 
Well, I think things are changing, and this is the wonderful thing that's happening. You know, uh, things are changing in funding. Uh, for example, the Autistic Researchers Review Board, which I was a part of, and Patrick is a part of. You know, so we're we're part of that sort of being able to review uh, research that's coming out and ensuring that there are certain you know aspects of the research that are that are being upheld that are more respectful to us, such as participatory research. And, you know, it's partly being driven by social aspects of our disability community, pushing for more respect, pushing for more understanding, pushing for our voices to be included, to be heard, to be a part of the true collaboration throughout the research process from research question all the way to findings uh, in a real true participatory manner. Like TC, I'm optimistic about the direction we're, we're heading in. I, I just wanted to add, though, that it can be a bit slow to get there because new things take time and people are frightened of them and people, you know, will do the kind of research that they're trained to do. So there's it takes it takes time. People's opinions are shifting. The attitudes are shifting. As TC says, what we're starting to prioritize is, is starting to shift, but there's still a lot of more work that needs to be done uh, in that direction. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'm talking with two researchers who study autism, Dr. T.C. Weisman and Patrick Dwyer. I'm curious to ask you both what you think autistic researchers bring to the field of autism research that a neurotypical research might not. I think we bring our whole selves. We bring our lived and intersectional experiences. And that's often missed in research all the way from inquiry to findings, you know, that our tapestry of understanding, we really are, uh, you know, we're removing the one dimensionality of research. A lot of research is siloed and focused on one aspect of, uh, of an autistic trait or uh, of autism. And we're much richer than that. You know, we're intersectional with our co-occurring disabilities. We're intersectional with our cultural aspects and, you know, all of the nuances in between. So we are, you know, we bring insight and awareness and knowledge um, and sometimes even, you know, a desire for practical solutions to problems that most non-autistic researchers are not even aware we need. So, you know, this perspective, I think, is really key. Patrick, there is this idea that people who are autistic shouldn't be included in research on autism because they can't study it objectively. How would you respond to that? I completely disagree with it. Why would neurotypicals be objective and autistic people uniquely biased? Yes, being autistic informs um, the perspective that we bring to our work. And it does so in ways that I think TC just very eloquently articulated are often very positive. But being non-autistic and looking from the outside at autism does not make one objective. It just means that one is differently biased and one is biased to value neurotypical norms and perhaps to not understands the sorts of challenges uh, that we experience from the perspective that we have uh, looking, you know, from our own experiences outwards. It's just a different positionality. You know, would you think that uh, if we, we should say that, you know, gender studies should only be done by men because women would be biased when it comes to, to gender because they, that's a more marginalized gender. Of course, it's, it's ridiculous. So we need people, you know, coming from all sorts of different perspectives, especially those of those who have been marginalized and left out. 
Yeah, I mean, Patrick said so, so eloquently as well about, you know, you know, can you imagine this being studied from the outside? For me, as a Black person, for example, can you imagine there'd be research on Black people without collaboration, without, you know, understanding the culture, you know, without in- inclusion, without true participatory inclusion in that? You know, when, when the question comes up about whether we're biased, when we're othering our people, our autistic people anyway, from the perspective of outside of it, that in itself is a bias. And Patrick clearly defined that. And your research for your PhD focused on how higher education could be more supportive of autistic students. So what do you see as some of the big barriers to being an autistic person in higher education? Yeah, so in my experience, by far from me personally, the biggest barrier uh, is the lack of education about autism in, you know, in the universities and colleges, you know, everywhere from disability services to faculty, staff, students and leaders. So for me, that's my personal experience. And we would like to see that there's recognition that neurodiversity be included in DEI. It's a DEI plus issue, you know, um, so uh, diversity, equity, and inclusivity. You know, that we make sure that our voices are included in the decision-making and policies uh, in changes that happen, you know, when we're talking about accommodations, that we establish disability cultural centers, you know, for institutional initiatives to promote neurodiversity and disability inclusion and acceptance. So to wrap up and just look to the future of autism research, what does that look like to you? TC, do you want to start? Yeah, I really hope autism research continues to evolve, that we continue to center intersectional autistic voices in meaningful ways, that participatory research becomes, you know, almost old hat because it's, you know, considered sort of the new standard, um, that we include cultural lenses in our research, that we value the priorities of older autistic people and that research becomes nuanced enough to include autistics who have other co-occurring disabilities that inevitably impact the research findings in ways that are not neat and tidy, but are also necessary to know. Yeah, having more community partnership, especially with autistic voices, but really bringing people, uh, all stakeholders together, including uh, parents and professionals as relevant, and letting people set what the research agenda should be to a much greater extent, I think will address a lot of the issues that we're seeing right now. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Indeed. Dr. T.C. Weisman is a leadership coach and researcher studying autism and higher education based in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Patrick Dwyer is a PhD student studying developmental psychology at the University of California, Davis. We want to say a special thanks to Ira Kramer for consulting on this story. After the break, delving into the world of parasite research. This is Science Friday. I'm Roxanne Kamsey. If you're about to eat lunch, fair warning, you might want to put down that sandwich for this next one. How do you map out a picture of how marine parasite populations have changed over time? Unfortunately, there's no great archive of historical samples. Or is there? Researchers recently gained access to a trove of canned salmon reaching back over 40 years, and they're using that information to try to build a baseline for what's normal and what's not in the seas. Joining me now to talk about this is Natalie Mastic, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences in Seattle. And she recently presented her work on this at the Ecological Society of America meeting. Welcome, Natalie, to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. So, Natalie, can you talk to me about these salmon samples? Like, tell me a little bit more about where they came from. So, 
the lab that I work in is Dr. Chelsea Woods lab at the School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. And we have kind of made a reputation for ourselves as being historical ecologists. So we use any type of historical data we can get our hands on to reconstruct baselines that might have been lost, especially for parasites, which are understudied. And there's an organization local to Seattle called the Seafood Products Association that heard about us in our lab and said, we have a basement full of canned salmon from the 70s and on. Are you interested? And after sitting on that invitation for a while, I I heard about it and jumped on it because I've been trying to figure out how parasites have changed in salmon for a long time, but there really aren't that many museum specimens available for salmon. And so all of a sudden there was this trove of salmon. But what does 40 years of salmon in cans look like? I was expecting to see like really old vintage labels and like ruptured cans and things like that. I didn't see that at all. I saw plastic totes full of unlabeled aluminum cans. It looks a lot like canned tuna. It's cooked fish inside of a can. Um, It comes in different sizes. Some of them are those traditional kind of squatty cans. Some of them are about the sinus of a can of beans. And then there are mega cans that are huge, like Costco size. (laughs) So you, you got out, I would assume, a can opener. But once you had the cans open, how do you analyze that salmon flesh, whatever you call it? That was the question because we're really used to analyzing frozen or fresh or museum specimens of fish, but we hadn't looked at cooked fish before for worms. So it took a kind of some trial and error between me and a postdoc in our lab, Rachel Wellicke, and eventually found out that the most effective way of finding these worms is by using two pairs of forceps, so basically two pairs of tweezers, and picking through all of the meat. So you guys were picking through these specimens with your special tweezers. What do you actually see when you're you're looking, I assume with a microscope? These worms you can see with your naked eye. So once we picked through, we would find a worm that was about a centimeter long, usually coiled up. And once you kind of get this search image in your head, you can pick them out pretty easily. And they form these little pockets in the muscle. So you'll find kind of like a little pocket with this little worm coiled up and you can pull it out and see everything that you need to with your naked eye. What's the kind of name these worms have? These are anisacid nematodes. So they are parasitic nematodes of the family anisacidae. And they are generalist parasites that infect a whole wide range of fish in the North Pacific and also throughout the world. And they use marine mammals as their definitive hosts. So these fish get eaten by a seal or a whale, and then those parasites infect that marine mammal and reproduce. And then those eggs are released into the ocean through the marine mammals' feces. So it's a cycle of life, but it seems like we wouldn't have a risk of getting infected with them if we happen to eat some canned salmon or canned fish. I'm guessing that that's not going to hurt us. So these parasites are cooked and the cooking process completely kills them. So if you eat canned fish that have these types of parasites, you're completely fine. Raw fish, on the other hand, if it hasn't been frozen, those worms are still alive and kicking and they can hurt us. They cause food poisoning like symptoms for about a day or two. 
Well, I'm glad there's a vegan sushi place near my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you did all this searching, but can you say a little bit more about what you found? Yes. So after dissecting a lot of cans, we found a significant increase in the number of these parasitic nematodes in pink and chum salmon over this 40-year period. And we also dissected cans of sockeye and coho salmon, but did not find the same trend. So in some species of salmon, like pink and chum, we're seeing this increase in parasite burden. And is it a lot? Is it like double or triple or... It's hard to say. Um, we are still running all of the numbers, but it varies. There are some cans that are worm-free. Um, of the cans that do have worms, the average is about three worms per can, which you definitely wouldn't notice if you were just the average consumer. Um, we did have one more recent can that had 115 worms in it. So they can reach pretty big quantities, but that's not, that's not typical. Yeah. Well, three is frankly too many. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me if there's like any idea why there's this increase? Is it a bad thing? So there are a couple different possible reasons for this. One that I think is pretty obvious to me is that generally in this area, marine mammals have recovered. So in the early 1970s, marine mammals in the U.S. were protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And with that increase in marine mammals, you're increasing the number of definitive hosts for these parasites. So there are more hosts in the environment that can eat these infected fish and release eggs into the environment. It also could be differences in these salmon diet or time spent in marine systems. There might have been a shift in their diets that could have led to an increase in eating prey that are parasitized. But I think it's probably the marine mammal hypothesis. So it's not an appetizing story, but there's a real silver lining here because it means that mammal species in the, in the waters are, are rebounding. Yes, that's exactly right. It seems to me like this is kind of a sign of ecosystem recovery. Because these parasites need so many different host species in the environment, if they're doing well, that means that their host species are also doing well. So I think this is actually a good thing. Well, I'm glad we could get to a happy ending here. Natalie Mastic, she's a PhD candidate at the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences in Seattle. Thanks so much, Natalie, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now turning the parasite way back machine to the medieval ages. You might think that the learned friars who lived in the town of Cambridge, scholars with access to innovations like latrines and places to wash their hands, might have lived healthier lives than the common folk. But a recent study published in the International Journal of Paleopathology says that at least when it comes to intestinal parasites, the friars might have been worse off. Dr. Piers Mitchell is one of the authors of that paper. He runs the Cambridge Ancient Parasites Laboratory and is a senior research associate in the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, Piers. Nice to talk to you. So you're talking to me from Cambridge in England. Let's take the clock way back. Can you give me a picture of what the population was like in Cambridge in the medieval times and who was there? The time period that we're looking at when we studied the skeletons for this uh, project, we're looking at about 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century. And at that time, Cambridge 
had a population of between two and 5,000. And the population was gradually expanding over that time because as the university became more established, more people moved into the town and it became a slightly bigger center. So what were the living conditions like back then? Well, it depends if you were poor or wealthy. So many people in Cambridge would have made part of their living or all their living from farming or from working as a trader or a merchant. Over time, more and more people joined the Cambridge population because of the academic role of the university. But there were also a disproportionately large number of friaries and monasteries and nunneries. So there was a really big long list of institutions. The friary that we studied was uh, Studium Generale for the Augustinian friars in England. So it was the main centre for uh, academic uh, writing and scholarly manuscript uh, reproduction and so on. So Cambridge was quite a centre for these religious orders. And I know we're really used to sanitizing our hands these days, but I guess back then it was a little bit less hygienic. Well, one of the key things is back then they didn't understand about infectious diseases and how diseases were spread. So they didn't see the need for a lot of the things we perceive as good hygiene. They thought that those kind of illnesses were uh, as a result of an imbalance of your four humors. So they felt that if you had normal levels of phlegm, black bile, yellow bile and blood and that they weren't corrupted by any disease process, then that kept you healthy. So they really didn't understand that washing your hands might protect you from getting infectious diseases or intestinal problems. So you were, you were looking at parasites, and particularly the parasites that these people might have been infected with. Can you say a bit more about how you spotted those parasites? Well, the best way to try and work out how common parasites were are to look at skeletons in the ground and to take the soil from their pelvis where the intestines would have been when they had these parasites. And then if you look at that soil down the microscope, you can see the microscopic things that are inside there. And while intestinal parasitic worms may be 5, 10, 30 centimetres in length and and sometimes uh, many feet in length, the eggs that they produce are tiny. So they may be uh, fractions of a thousandth of a millimetre. So the only way to see those is using microscopy. And those are the ones that lasted in the archaeological record? That's right. So the adult worms would die and decompose when their host dies and decomposes in the ground when they're buried. But the parasite eggs are much tougher. And so we can find them hundreds of years later. Yum. (laughs) So you're sampling the dirt uh, from around the remains in the graveyard, specifically around the pelvis of the skeletons. Can you tell us a little bit about what the findings revealed? after you did all that analysis? Sure. So we wanted to not just study one population, but to do a comparison of different populations who live different lifestyles. So we looked at the burials from a normal parish cemetery called All Saints by the Castle. And then we compared them with the burials of friars inside the Augustinian friary. And what's special about this particular burial ground is that the friars are actually buried with their habits and their special belts on. So you can tell which ones are friars and which ones might be members of town who are buried in the friary burial grounds, because you could do that if you paid extra by the fact that they still had their belts on. So we knew we were definitely dealing with the friars' skeletons themselves. And by comparing those two, we can see, is there any difference in parasite infection uh, that might reflect the different lifestyles that the poor peasants in town versus the friars would have actually sustained. 
we expected to find that the friars with their nice latrine block and hand washing and, and rule of their order, which uh, stressed the nature of hygiene and cleanliness, we expected them to have lower levels of parasite infection than we did in the general public, who uh, many of them were very poor. They may not have even had a cesspit toilet themselves. And but what we actually found was that compared with four members of the public, about 32% had intestinal worm infections. In the Augustinian friars, it was 58%. So that's nearly twice the percentage that had these intestinal worms. How surprised were you when you found out this, this paradoxical result? Well, we thought, crikey, this is not what we were expecting. So now we had to take a step back and think, what is different about these two groups and the way they live their lives? And what is special about the kind of parasites that were present? And the kind of parasites that were present were roundworm and whipworm, and these are spread by poor sanitation. So we didn't find parasites that are spread by eating certain meats, like fish tapeworm from eating fish or pork tapeworm from eating pig. So we had to think, what's special about the life cycle and how might that fit in with what we know about the medieval period? Now, written sources from the time do talk about how people would fertilize their crops and their gardens with manure from animals, just as people often do today. But it was just as common then to use human feces to fertilize your food and your crops as well. So people would dig out the cesspits when they became full because someone's got to make the toilet usable again. And then they would fertilize their crops with it because they didn't understand about infectious diseases and the fact that worms could be spread with fresh feces, they would fertilize the crop straight away rather than manuring it as the World Health Organization recommends today. Because if you manure the feces for a year or so, most of the parasite eggs die and it's much safer to do that. So that might explain why the friars had a higher level of parasite infection than the general public, because if they had a nice latrine block and if they were emptying out their latrines onto their uh, friary gardens once a year when they were filled up, then that might lead to reinfection of the friars with the parasites that we're seeing. And that might have explained why they had more parasites than members of the general public who may not have had a toilet at all, or may not have been in a position to um, use their cesspit contents to actually fertilize their own garden. So what's so interesting to me is that you're studying historical parasites. What is it about these ancient parasites that is going to help us understand our world today? Well, many people are fascinated by our ancestors and the lives they lived and the health that they had. But it also helps us to understand the impact of the modern public health interventions that we take for granted so that now everyone expects that the water that comes out of their tap will be clean and healthy. They expect the food they buy in the supermarket to be clean and, and, and ready to eat. Everyone expects their children to survive to be a good age, whereas in the past people expected most of their children to die before adulthood. So if we can study uh, people who lived before all these public health interventions that we take for granted uh, and then show the health consequences among people, and it hopefully reminds modern people why they should be washing their hands and why if they go on holiday to places that don't have such good sanitation, they have to take extra care with the water they drink, they have to make sure they wash their hands, have to make sure they have cooked food rather than salads, because otherwise they will be at risk of getting the kind of parasites that the Augustinian friars did back in the medieval period. Well, that was really interesting, and it's all the more reason for us to remember these days to wash our hands. Not that we need a reminder. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you.
Dr. Piers Mitchell runs the Cambridge Ancient Parasites Laboratory and is a senior research associate in the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research at the University of Cambridge. Here's Charles Berquist with some folks who helped make this show happen. Emma Gomez and Dee Peterschmidt are our digital producers. Jordan Smudgick and Jason Rosenberg are our grants managers. Ariel Zitch is our director of audience. Beth Ramey is our controller. And I'm radio director Charles Bergquist. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Charles. BJ Lederman composed our theme music. Iris back next week. I'm Roxanne Kamsey. <laughs>